So, President Trump got impeached by the House of Representatives. How do we know what happens from here? Well, the best way of figuring out when you're practicing law or you're trying to advise clients on the law is to look at what's happened before. And really, there's really only been other two other presidents who have been impeached before. And again, that doesn't mean removed. That means impeached by the House of Representatives. So it would still have to go to the Senate for a trial and a conviction or an acquittal. So the first time that happened was Andrew Johnson. This is back in the 1800s. And this is really um, pretty inapplicable to, to what we're looking at today. The only other time that happened was with Bill Clinton in 1998. Um, a lot of people think that Richard Nixon was impeached in the Watergate era, but he wasn't actually impeached. There was such strong bipartisan support that uh, Republican senators had visited Nixon at the White House and told him, look, you need to resign or you will be impeached and removed. So we didn't actually have an impeachment in that in that case. Uh, there is um, important, uh, there are some important comparisons to the Watergate era, but really the only impeachment where we can look at what law was used, what evidence was used, what was said, and what happened, that was in 1998 with Bill Clinton. So you know, where I've been watching, or trying not to watch anyways, but seeing this happen, and I'm and wondering to myself, well, you know, wh what is going to happen? What, what are high crimes and misdemeanors? Uh, are the Democrats really out of line here, or is this something that's allowable under the Constitution? Are they protecting and defending the Constitution, or are they violating the Constitution? I believe that we can look first to the Constitution and then to what happened in 1998. So what is the impeachment power that Congress has given over the President and the Constitution? What does it actually say? Well, Article 2, Section 4 of the Constitution says that the President or the Vice President and all civil officers of the United States shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. Now that phrase, high crimes and misdemeanors, is where we are today. That is the huge gray area. What does high crimes and misdemeanors mean? We can look back at the English law before our country was founded because they used that phrase then. But it still isn't much help because it really is never really given a good definition other than kind of you know it when you see it type of thing. And you'll see that's kind of how it's turned out to be in American jurisprudence is, you know, it's you know it when you see it. Well, like I said, Clinton was impeached in 1998. And some of us really understand what that was for and some of us don't understand what it was for. For instance, Nancy Pelosi um, had gotten up and said something to the effect of, well, we impeached, you know, Republicans impeached Bill Clinton for... Um, you know, personal indiscretions, basically having an affair. And, uh, you know, this is just so much more important than that. Well, actually, that's not exactly what Bill Clinton was impeached for. So I, I pulled the actual articles of impeachment uh, for Bill Clinton in the 1998 case. Um, there were two articles. The first article was charges that Clinton lied to the grand jury concerning, number one, the natures and details of his relationship with Monica Lewinsky, 
Number two, prior false statements he made in the Paula Jones case deposition. Number three, prior false statements he allowed his lawyer to make characterizing Monica Lewinsky's affidavit. And lastly, his attempts to tamper with witnesses. So that was Article 1. Article 2 charged that Clinton was attempting to obstruct justice in the Paula Jones case by, and, and in seven ways, encouraging Lewinsky to file a false affidavit. Secondly, encouraging Lewinsky to give false testimony if and when she was called to testify. Number three, concealing gifts he had given to Lewinsky that had been subpoenaed. Number four, attempting to secure a job for Lewinsky to influence her testimony. Number five, permitting his lawyer to make false statements characterizing Lewinsky's affidavit. And number six, attempting to tamper with the possible testimony of his secretary, Betty Curie. And lastly, number seven, making false and misleading statements to potential grand jury witnesses. So those were the two articles of impeachment against Bill Clinton. Article one was about lying to the grand jury. Article two was attempting to obstruct justice. Really, the, the, the best way to look at the Democrats, and they were representing Bill Clinton at this time, so they're essentially the defendants in an, an impeachment case. You can look at what their lawyer argued, and um, they had this really uh, interesting argument from the Democrat chief counsel, Abe Lowell, who argued before the Judiciary Committee while still in the House not to, not to even bring the impeachment to send to the Senate. So this is before Clinton was even impeached when the House Judiciary members and then the, the ultimately the House um, altogether would be considering whether or not to impeach Bill Clinton, which they ended up doing. But let's just look at the Democrats' lawyers and, and thus the Democrats' position then. Um, and really, it looks almost exact opposite as what we've seen here with the impeachment of Donald Trump. Instead of having all these experts coming in, um, stating that, yeah, there should be an impeachment, this is a terrible thing, it was exactly the opposite. They came in and said the opposite. And um, you, you don't need to take my word for it. Let, let me just give you it in their own words. Um, Mr. Lowell said, um, he cited first Professor, professor Schlesinger, you know, one of these, uh, one of these uh, professors that, that uh, would come in to testify about the law of impeachment. Um, and he cites him and he says, lowering the bar for impeachment creates a novel revolution theory of Im revolutionary theory of impeachment, which would send us on an adventure with ominous implications for the separation of powers that the Constitution establishes the basis of our political order. It would permanently weaken the presidency. He also cited uh, then-Congressman Lindsey Graham as saying, without public outrage, impeachment is a very difficult thing, and I think it's an essential component of impeachment. I think that it's something that the Founding Fathers probably envisioned. Uh, he cited Professor Jack Rakove, or Rakovi, Impeachment is a remedy to be deployed only in unequivocal cases where the insult to the constitutional system is grave. It would have to be a high degree of consensus on both sides of the aisle in Congress and in both houses to proceed. So he, Mr. Lowell said that from listening to our constitutional scholars, who at that point did not like impeachment, though they do now, 
We learn that debates about impeachment are like the wall protecting the fort of the Constitution's separation of powers. The crack you put in the wall today becomes the gash tomorrow, which ultimately leads to the wall crumbling down. It is that serious. It is so serious that the wall was never even approached when President Lincoln suspended the writ of habeas corpus, nor when President Roosevelt misled the public about the involvement in the Lend-Lease program, nor when President Reagan misled the country in Congress about involvement with Iran-Contra. If you look, as we did last night, we cannot find in these articles what statements the majority contends were lies. Instead of precision, there is the phrase in Article 1 that the president gave misleading testimony concerning, quote, the nature and details of his relationship. Article 2 reads no better. Mr. Chairman, I know you and the staff are trying to be fair, but how is it fair to make these kinds of unspecified charges in these halls, in the People's House, on something as grave as impeachment? We should be doing better than filing charges that would be thrown out for vagueness in every courtroom in the land. All of the federal prosecutors who testified here said that this would never be a real case in real court. So if lawyers can conclude that this would not be charged as a crime, how do you as lawmakers allow it to be charged as a, quote, high crime? Does that sound familiar? Because what the Democrats have done here and is really not allege anything that would be a crime. And that's what exactly the opposite of what they were arguing in 1998 is that you can't bring this impeachment article if it's not something that a prosecutor could even prosecute in a real courtroom. So that still remains shocking to me, as I hope it does to all the other lawyers on this committee, that you would even consider as an article of impeachment an assertion of an evidentiary privilege by the president on the advice of his lawyers in the White House counsel that was found to exist by a judge and that could never be grounds for an impeachment. Now, what he's talking about here is they're attempting to impeach President Clinton for asserting his presidential privileges. But isn't that exactly you know, what they are alleging that Trump did is, is obstruction of Congress? when really, under his presidential powers, he's entitled to do so. But back then, this is what they argued. I've heard the majority state that a president should not be above the law. Sound familiar? And yet this proposed article would place him below the law that gives every American the right to assert legally accepted privileges without fearing being thrown out of his job. So that's exactly what they're arguing now is that President Trump was, quote, or that nobody is above the law. Nobody's above the law. Well, their point back in 1998 was, is that Republicans can't, can't make that argument that President Clinton's not above the law. In fact, they're, they're arguing he's below the law because he can't even assert his privileges that have been found by federal courts to exist because he's president of the United States. So Bill Clinton was allowed to assert presidential privileges, but Donald Trump in 2019 is not. And you'll see this is just a pattern of, of hypocrisy. And this is not opinion necessarily. This is just looking at the facts of what happened in 1998 as compared to what's happening in 2019. What, what did they say then versus what they're saying now? Mr. Lowell then brings up that We've had 400 historians, all of which took time to write the Judiciary Committee. And they wrote that the theory of impeachment 
that is now contained, as it turns out, in your proposed articles. Quote, underlying these efforts is unprecedented, unprecedented in our history and are extremely ominous for the future of our political institutions. If carried forward, they warned us, they will leave the presidency permanently disfigured and diminished at the mercy as never before of the caprices of Congress. So back then in 1998, there were 400 historians that wrote the Judiciary Committee and said, you cannot go forward with these articles of impeachment. This is unprecedented. It's never happened. And it's very dangerous for our political institutions. And if you go forward, you will permanently disfigure the presidency. And the presidency will in the future be at the mercy of Congress. So that was the opinion of over 400 historians back then. Do you think 400 historians have written in support of Donald Trump? No. No. Unfortunately, people like these law professors, these historians, these academics, I mean, they, if you had tried to impeach President Obama, for sure they'd come forward and talk about the importance of the Constitution and the presidency and, and, and these same things that you heard in 1998. But do they do the same if it's a Republican president, or even worse, President Trump, whom they can't stand. The academics cannot stand. So I don't think there's been 400 historians, or maybe I haven't heard of any historians who have gotten involved or who have been sought to be involved by the Democrats about, well, what effect might this have on the presidency itself or separation of powers or our country? He then talked about over 200 constitutional legal scholars. Now, we did hear from, what, four legal scholars, including one from my law school, who also testified during the Bill Clinton impeachment. And if you would guess that he was against the impeachment then but for the impeachment now because he has liberal politics and he's a hypocrite, you would be right. You would be right. And... Uh, his name was Professor Michael Gerhardt, you know, from my law school, unfortunately. Uh, he testified in 1998 um, in the Bill Clinton impeachment, and I think he's probably made a living off that ever after. Um, you know, uh, every one of his introductions thereafter you know, contained the fact that he testified at Bill Clinton's impeachment hearings. And let's listen to what he said then. You can go look up what he said now, but you don't need to. You know what he said. But this is what he said then, which you may not know. Professor Michael Gerhardt, he said, had to be of great or dangerous, speaking of the president's actions for which they're trying to impeach him, causing some serious injury to the republic. The framers emphasized that the ultimate purpose of impeachment was not to punish, but to protect and preserve the public trust. There was Professor William Van Alstyne, who eloquently said, if the president did that which the special counsel report has declared are crimes of such a low order that it would unduly flatter the president by submitting him to a trial in the Senate, I would not bother to do it. Then there's former Watergate era attorney, uh, attorney general Elliot Richardson, who said he warned a vote to impeach is a vote to remove. If members believe that they should 
um, that that should be the outcome, they should vote to impeach. If they think that it's an excessive sentence, they should vote to not impeach. Because if they do, the matter is out of your hands. Well, somebody tell that to Nancy Pelosi because she will not release the matter out of her hands. Professor John Lavovitz was cited by the Democrats in their closing arguments here, who had examined the history of impeachment and how it had been applied in the Watergate scandal. And he concluded with words that seem if they were written for the 1998 events themselves, though, of course, not the 2019 events, because Donald Trump does not get that benefit. He said, quote, there were undesirable consequences if the House voted impeachment on the basis of one-sided or incomplete factual information or insufficiently persuasive evidence, subjecting the Senate, the president, and the nation to the uncertainty and potential divisiveness of a presidential impeachment trial is not a step to be lightly undertaken. While the formal consequences of an ill-advised impeachment would merely be acquittal after trial, the political ramifications could be much more severe. Accordingly, the House, the House should not vote for impeachments that are unlikely to succeed in the Senate. The standards of proof applied in the House should reflect the standards of proof in the Senate. Again, where have we heard that um, again now? Um, you know, the, the, the Democrats' demands and advice in 1998 was that we cannot impeach if it's not going to succeed or not likely to succeed in the Senate. Here, they, they've always known that it wasn't going to succeed in the Senate. So why do it? And that's exactly the point. It's just to stain a reputation or to otherwise harm the country or harm a political party. Mr. Chairman and members of the committee, he, he said, one of the articles that you propose uses the phrase, quote, abuse of power. That phrase does have a Watergate ring, and I'm sure it is why it has been resuscitated even without evidence. Those are their words. That's the exact phrase that they, Democrats themselves, now have resuscitated in 2019. Abuse of power. And that's from Watergate. But as the point he makes then is equally valid now, he says, but in a way it's a good thing that the majority has made that attempt to use that phrase and bring Watergate into it. Because in the end, Watergate was a congressional event which both sides could identify as serious and substantial enough to call for truly bipartisan action. And he goes on to argue that that was not what, what we had, even with the Clinton impeachment, that it was, it was not bipartisan. So Clinton was not convicted because there were Republicans who voted not guilty for Clinton. But it was highly along partisan lines, whereas Watergate, there was bipartisan unanimous uh, mutual agreement that Nixon needed to go. Then they bring in really what has been the American left's hero as far as if they consider any of the founding fathers to be heroes, Alexander Hamilton. And Alexander Hamilton did speak on impeachment. We know what he said. And so Clinton's lawyers, the Democrats' lawyer, in 1998, brought up Alexander Hamilton, and this is how they closed their closing argument. That Alexander Hamilton's explanation of impeachment and his warnings not to abuse it apply today. He said, it will seldom fail to agitate the passions of the whole community and to divide it into parties more or less friendly or inimical to the accused. Boy, does that sound familiar. In many cases, it will connect itself with the pre-existing factions. A 
again, familiar. And in such cases, there will always be the danger that the, the, the decision will be regulated more by the comparative strength of the parties than by real demonstrations of innocence and guilt. So that's exactly the situation that Alexander Hamilton warned of and the situation that really occurred in 1998, even though there were legitimate um, allegations against Clinton about him lying under oath. It was caught on video trying to cover things up. Now, whether he should have been impeached by, for that or not is, is a political football that probably the Republicans should not have played because here's, here's the thing. Similar to Trump, Bill Clinton had very high approval ratings. The American public just did not really care that much. As kind of crazy as, as, as the situation was and really interesting then because, you know, sex sells. But the public wasn't into it. They did not want the president removed. So it wasn't going to happen. It didn't happen. And similarly, now, the public has shown no preference, no overwhelming support for the president to be removed. It's just, that's just the polling data. And so it was never going to happen. It's not going to happen. Richard Nixon, the public overwhelmingly agreed with him being removed from office if they had to go forward. That is the difference. That's what's missing here. What about the trial in the Senate? So once the House of Representatives impeached Clinton, they sent it forward, and it went for a trial in the Senate. There's been a lot of talk about, well, the Democrats are going to want to have, you know, spend the whole next year, all the way up to the election, having this circus atmosphere of a trial in the Senate with witnesses and so on and so forth. Well, the Senate can set whatever rules it wants to, but if we look at 1998, what the, the fairly bipartisan agreement was for how the, the, the trial would be conducted, here's how it went. So the managers presented their case, and that would be basically the prosecutors. So the Republican, the, the, the Republican prosecutors essentially presented a case over the course of three days. January 14th to January 16th of 1998. So that's three days for the prosecutors to put on their evidence. And again, this was about a lot more than just one phone call with the Ukrainian president. This had to do with all sorts of uh, depositions from civil cases, witness testimonies of Monica Lewinsky, and, and uh, so on and so forth. There was a lot more evidence there, but three days it was all presented. The defense then got to present their side of the case. You know, the defense, that took another three days, January 19th through 21st. So we have a total of six days worth of a trial. And that might strike you as actually pretty short. So it's, if we look at the, the precedent, really, even with more evidence to deal with, that was only a six-day trial. So... It's unlikely that even if there was a trial, that it could be extended that much longer. And again, the president really had an, an approval rating of more than 70% who believed that his ability to govern as president wasn't impaired by all these things that had happened. So it was not a popular decision to go 
I mean, because in the Senate, you have to have, what, you have to have 67 votes. If there's 100 senators, you have to have a two-thirds majority. So 67 votes. So the Republicans did not have a 67 uh, vote or a two-thirds majority in the Senate. So it was going to take Democrats crossing over. And that was the idea from the founders. There has to be somewhat bipartisan. It doesn't have to be unanimous. But even that president's party or the majority and minority uh, parties in, in, in the Senate have to somewhat agree on this. Um, but they, it wasn't going to happen with Clinton. The public approval, the public support wasn't there. So what happened? And this is important to West Virginians, and I'd never heard this before really till I started researching it, but on January 25th, then-Senator Robert Byrd from West Virginia moved for dismissals of both articles of impeachment from the Senate for lack of merit. And that's something that's been discussed today is, is Mitch McConnell or, or some other senator, senator trying to going to file a motion to dismiss, to just dismiss these charges? Or is there going to be a trial? So there was a motion to dismiss in the 98 trial. However, it was after the trial had occurred. That ultimately did not get enough support to, to, to dismiss the case. Um, it continued. So what happened next as far as the process? So we had another three-day period from February 1st to the 3rd. The House managers, a.k.a. prosecutors, then took videotaped closed-door depositions. So this isn't something that was on TV. It wasn't something that was even in the open Senate, it, you know, this testimony that occurred in the, in the Senate. They took closed-door depositions of Monica Lewinsky and Vernon Jordan, who was Clinton's friend, and White House aide Sid, uh, Sidney Blumenthal. The next day, um, after that three-day period of depositions, February 4th, then the Senate voted um, 70 to 30 that ex ex excerpting these videotapes, so in other words, cutting, cutting pieces of it that are relevant, would suffice as testimony before the Senate rather than calling live witnesses to appear at trial. So again, an, an, an important thing to consider, you know, that, that Schumer wants to call witnesses and have this circus atmosphere uh, with new testimony and, and so on, but that's not what happened in 1998. So Lastly, the last day, February 8th, and so that, this was a pretty quick process. You know, it began early January, and it's over in about a month. February 8th, closing arguments were presented uh, with each side given three hours to argue. So there's the precedent on how this process should happen in the Senate if it's going to happen. Uh, but again, just like Robert Byrd did, someone could present a motion to dismiss. Uh, the verdict the next day, February 9th, <clears throat> Uh, there were closed-door deliberations. They came out of closed-door deliberations. Again, they had to have a two-thirds vote of 67 senators to convict and remove President Clinton from office. They did not get there. The perjury charges, which was Article 1, was defeated. 45 voted for it, and 55 voted against it. And that included 10 Republicans who voted against it, or in other words, voted for not guilty whereas zero, all the Democrats unan unanimously voted for not guilty. Then you had the second article, which was basically attempt to obstruct uh, justice, and in that you had a 50-50 even vote. 50 Republicans um, voted guilty, zero Democrats voted guilty. But five Republicans switched over and voted not guilty, whereas all 45 Democrats at that time voted not guilty. So 
Clinton was acquitted of the 1998 um, Senate impeachment trial, um, which took place over, about over the course of, month, of a month. So what happened afterwards? Um, one day before leaving office, January 2001, Bill Clinton agreed to a five-year suspension of his Arkansas law license, um, agreed to pay a $25,000 fine, and that was to end the investigation um, without any criminal charges um, for the allegations of perjury and obstruction of justice. So Bill Clinton did voluntarily agree to, to a five-year suspension of his law license and a $25,000 fine for allegations that he lied under oath. Um, lastly, there was a civil settlement by Bill Clinton with Paula Jones, where um, Clinton agreed to pay Paula Jones $850,000. So little different facts than we have now in 2019. Um, you know, a lot of different facts, but the process, the procedure is probably the same. And we can always look to history to see what is going to happen in the future. You know, and I think it would be important for Republicans here to look at these words of uh, Abe Lowell, the Democrat lawyer in the House in 1998 and 1997, when he's arguing that all these 400, you know, constitutional scholars, historians, and law professors, they're all warning you and begging you not to do it because it's going to harm the country. And... And even though high crimes and misdemeanors is a gray area, we know that it means that it has to be something that's just so unanimous that, that we all believe is, should disqualify and give what's essentially the death penalty of, a, of the presidency, which is removal from office. So they were all high and mighty on one, wanting to protect the presidency in 1998. But now... I still don't quite understand what the problem is, other than we all know what the problem is. They just don't like Trump. They don't like the way he looks, the way he tweets, the way he talks with no suggestion even of political correctness. They want to impeach Trump because they're convinced he puts children in cages. They just hate his guts. That's why they want to impeach him. It's not because of a phone call with Ukraine, but I would submit to you that the appropriate means of redress for those complaints, whether you agree or not, is the 2020 ballot box. It's not through impeachment, because now, obviously, what's going to happen when you have a Democrat president next time and the Republicans want to impeach him. Now what's the precedent? Now we have the 2019 precedent. So again, um, I appreciate you listening. You can always look at history to understand where you're going in the future. And again, I'm John Bryan. Uh, you can find my contact at johnbryanlaw.com.